This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today I am delighted to be joined by my friend Eric Stackelbeck, who is the director of Christians United for Israel's Watchman Project and the host of the very popular Watchman program on TBN. He's the author of several books on counterterrorism and has written on the subject for the Wall Street Journal, the Jerusalem Post, the New York Post, and many other publications. He has spoken at APAC, the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, and the Israel Allies Foundation. And for those of you who want to see some of Eric's work on television, I recommend going to YouTube and looking for the City of David's Top 10 Finds Proving Israel's Claims to Jerusalem. That's my favorite of the segments. So, Eric, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, it is great to be with you. Thank you. And I was just recalling where we met. It was the day, it was the, the, the moment before the United States Embassy was officially in Jerusalem. That's right. We were at the opening ceremony, Mark, and it's funny. A good friend of mine in Jerusalem by the name of Chris Mitchell uh, works for CBN News. He said, I have a guy you have to meet. I think you guys would really connect and have a lot in common. And the rest is history. We connected right away. We met, I think, for dinner in New York, and it's been a great relationship ever since. That's right. So it was, uh, yeah, starting at that great day when the uh, United States Embassy was moved to Jerusalem uh, to, to the rabbi's husband say, thank you for coming. So uh, yeah. I am so happy that you picked this passage, uh, Genesis 12, 3, because it is so important in the Bible and in the worldview of Christian Zionists. So, Eric, if you could explain um, what 12.3 is and the context for it and why it's so important to you. Sure. This is a foundational verse for my life, Mark, and my life's work. I think for every Christian Zionist, really, Genesis 12.3, where God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, meaning the Jewish people, and I will curse those who curse you. And another key point here, Mark, God closes by saying to Abraham, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And man, oh man, I call it the power of Genesis 12, 3, Mark. If you look at the track record over the past, oh, I don't know, 3,500, 4,000 years since God said that to Abraham, you see the nations, the individuals, the empires who have cursed Israel and the Jewish people. They have ended up in the ash heap of history. On the other hand, those who bless Israel and the Jewish people have been blessed profoundly. And at no more time than today do we see all nations on earth being blessed through the Jewish people. So amazing how Genesis 12.3 has that staying power, a foundational verse for every Christian Zionist, and it continues to be today, even now, more than ever. So as a, as a Christian, how did this verse help to define both your Zionism which is, by the way, extraordinary, both Thank you. Um, in its conception and in the way you articulated so magnificently to so many millions of people. So how did this verse um, influence your Christianity, your Zionism, and the way that you've combined the two into who you are publicly? Yeah, for me, Mark, it's a common sense thing in terms of being a Christian who believes in, in the truth of the Bible and believes in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's very clear. There's, there's really no gray areas with God. He's very black and white most of the time, and he is clear. 
He says to Abraham, no ifs, ands, or buts. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Call me crazy, but I want to be on the right side of God. And clearly, he's very black and white here. I will bless those who bless Israel and the Jewish people. It, for I me, it's not dry. Absolutely. And that's a very important point you make about the Torah in general. When you talk about how clear it is, the, the Torah is the great guidebook for all of us. It's supposed yes. to guide us how to live. There would be no point in writing a guidebook that was difficult to figure out. Yes. You're like you're driving down the highway. <laughs> there'd be no point if the signs were intentionally unclear. No, the signs are very clear. And this is so when God wrote the Torah and we have a Torah, it's all very clear. Now we have to read it and study it. But there aren't going to be many mysteries. It's the guidebook for us to live in the world today. So it has to be. And in fact, it is highly practical. Yeah, so true, Mark. And it's common sense. And unfortunately, we live in times where common sense is not so common. But to me, very clear. So as someone starting out as a Christian, and really, you and I have discussed this, my background. I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Philadelphia. My dad was such a well-read, intellectually curious guy. He knew the Bible. He loved Israel. He loved the Jewish people. I had so many profound Jewish influences in my life from a young age, coaches, teachers, good friends. And to me, it all just came together. Once I started taking my faith seriously, it all added up. And I said, wow, this is really the way in which I ought to go. How old were you when you started taking your faith seriously? I'd say 27. I'm 44 years old now, Mark. Really, I was t- I'm was. i pretty young in this walk. I was 27 years old now. I will preface that by saying I grew up in a believing home. Uh, I grew up in a God-fearing home. But for me, and I believed in God uh, intellectually, and I saw God's out there, but I was kind of living in the world, as you would say. But for me, I never picked up a Bible and actually read it until I was 26, 27 years old. Now, I listened to my father tell stories about the Bible, tell stories about King David and Israel, and I soaked it up as a young guy at the dinner table. But I actually never picked up the Word of God for myself and started to devour it until I was 26, 27 years old. And it's been a wild journey, I have to say, the most gratifying journey. Obviously, every day is a new adventure as I walk with the God of Israel. And for me, I already instinctively knew I instinctively knew that Israel was good, the Jewish people were good, because again, my experiences growing up, the Jewish people had blessed me. I had such deep relationships with Jewish friends, mentors, and influences in my life. So I instinctively knew that Jewish people are good. And just looking at the Middle East and being a close observer of events there, I knew that Israel was on the right side. Israel was a force for good against evil forces. But then when I started to read the Torah, when I started to read the Tanakh, I started to read the Word of God. It really all came together for me because not only was it instinctively common sense type knowledge, but to have it solidified in the word of God meant everything for me. And that's, that's beautiful. Now, getting back to 12.3 and the importance of it in the, in the Christian Zionist mind, a lot of people who don't understand Christian Zionists, probably they don't know any Christian Zionists, assume that Christians are Zionists because of some end time theology. No, not true, Mark. But when you talk with Christian Zionists, they talk about 12.3. They don't even say Genesis 12.3 because you don't need to. Everyone knows what 12.3 is. How many 12.3s are there in the Bible? There are obviously at least five in the Torah, but then yes. all the other books, there are dozens more. But when a Christian Zionist, they, they talk like they talk, you talk saying 12.3, and everyone knows exactly what verse you're talking about. Yeah. No, so true, Mark. Again, a foundational verse of the movement, number one. And look, the blessings, the curses, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit as we go on today. Sure. But I think the second part of that verse is often overlooked, even by some Christian Zionists. God says to Abraham, through you, 
all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, to me, the, the greatest blessing is that God revealed himself through the Jewish people to a Gentile like me who would not know the God of Israel without it being revealed to me by the people of Israel. God chose the Jewish people to transmit his message to the world. So that's the greatest blessing, number one, that the Jewish people have been. But number two, in kind of a practical sense, I guess you would say, Mark, look at today. Look at the medical, the scientific, the high-tech breakthroughs. It's amazing. If there's a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's found, it's going to be found. I say this is a proud American, but I firmly believe it will be found in Israel. That's not to mention even the incredible humanitarian work which Israel is doing around the world to bless people. If there's a hurricane in Houston, an earthquake in Haiti, even a massive explosion, a disaster in Beirut, Israel. Israelis are the first to offer a helping hand, a blessing to the world. Your technical assessment, your sociological assessment, technological assessment is completely right. How do you explain what you just said religiously or theologically in the context of the Christian Zionist that you are? Yeah, I think God is a promise-keeping God. Clearly, I look at the book of Zechariah, it's amazing. God has a special role for Israel and the Jewish people. He has throughout history, and he has today more than ever. I look at the book of Zechariah, Mark, which I was just going through reading over the past week, and God says a day is coming where people from all over the world, I'm paraphrasing here, but people from all nations will take the hem of the robe of one Jew and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Amazing. So clearly, world, whether you like it or not, God, as Dennis Prager has said, my friend Dennis Prager, he has said, God chose us. Deal with it. Get over it. It's just the way it is. God has a divine mandate that he's given to Israel and the Jewish people. And I believe today, the Jewish people in the land of Israel in particular where God is in-gathering the exiles in an amazing way, are fulfilling and stepping into that biblical mandate for such a time as this. To me, it's, it's fascinating, it's exciting to see, and to have some small part in it being in Israel every few months and filming and just such deep relationships and friendships with Israelis and with my Jewish friends here in the United States and around the world. So in the context of 12.3, and with regards to Israel, a country with you're so intimately familiar in so many different levels, what do you think is going on theologically? I think God is laying down, again, we said he's very black and white. I think God is laying down the gauntlet, so to speak, and he's telling the world, look, this is how it's going to be. These are my people. They are my special, the land of Israel is mine. This people is a people I have set apart for a righteous and holy cause to be a light unto the nations. And if you dare touch these people, you are touching the apple of my eye, God says elsewhere in scripture. So God is very clear. He's laying down a marker. He's not only, number one, giving to Abraham the mandate, uh, the father, the patriarch, he's saying, look, you have a special mandate here, a, a, a holy charge. But number, And he's telling the world that by extension. But number two, he's saying to the world, if you dare, touch this people, you will deal with me. Certainly not, maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next. He is being very clear about his intentions from the, from the beginning of scripture about his intentions for the Jewish people. I think that's what's happening theologically. God is telling the world, he's giving almost a foreshadowing, this is how human history is going to go. This people and this land are central in my plan for humanity. 
He's laying down the gauntlet right in the beginning of the Torah, in the beginning of Genesis there, close to the beginning of the book of Genesis through Abraham. And he's also giving the, the, I don't want to say the caveat, but he's saying, look, this people, God's almost saying in the theological sense, trust me, it's going to be good. This people will be a blessing to the world. Bless this people. Walk with them. Be kind to them. Listen to them as they reveal my word that I am transmitting through them to you, and they will be a blessing to the world. To me, it's not hard to understand, Mark. You know, I, it, it just moving forward throughout the Torah, the Tanakh, God says again and again that his promises to Israel were, and I quote, he says, forever yep. and everlasting. Again and again, and my question is, and my question for some fellow Christians, Mark, who believe that God is done with Israel, that the, the miraculous reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948 meant nothing. God is done with the Jewish people. My question for them is, if, the, if we're having an honest reading of Scripture, what part of forever and everlasting don't you understand? Again, God is very black and white. This covenant with Israel and the Jewish people is forever everlasting. And Mark, he is a promise-keeping God. He will not break covenant. And I also think in this passage, it's very interesting that God reveals an aspect of his personality in how he says it, because he said, I will bless those who bless you, and he who curses you, I will curse. The order is reversed. So the blessing from God comes before the blessing that the Gentile gives to the Jew. In other words, God says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're about to do. I'm going to give you the blessing to help you do it. But he's not going to curse anybody until they curse. Yes. His curse comes after their curse. Yeah. So the punishment comes after the crime, so to speak, but the blessing comes before the blessing. Yeah. Uh, Mark, that's, that's, a, that's actually a great point to bring out. Uh, God is such a, a patient and long-suffering God that he gives us every chance to do the right thing and to follow him. And he's giving the Gentiles every chance look, I'm telling you to bless these people and they will be a blessing to you and be a blessing to the entire world. So God is saying, look, please don't do the wrong thing. Please don't turn against my special people who I have set apart and against my land. And he's giving the chances, like you said, look, I, I want to bless you. I don't want to curse you. It's like God is saying to put that first mark, as you said, but unfortunately throughout history, uh, people haven't, I guess, necessarily gotten the memo from God Almighty and have gone in the other direction. But I think, Mark, that the track record of history bears out the truth and the power of Genesis 12.3 because I don't see the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrian Empire, Haman, prime minister of the mighty Persian Empire, the Nazis, the Greeks, the Romans. I don't see them anymore. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, where are they? They are in the ash heap of history because they cursed Israel and the Jewish people. Where is Israel? Against all odds, this tiny nation the size of the state of New Jersey, surrounded by enemies on all sides for the most part, continues to not only survive, but thrive. Only God, only God could make this happen. And God is, again, a promise-keeping God for the good, and as we see for the enemies of Israel, for the bad. That curse is very, very real. Absolutely. And, and he also teaches us in this incredible passage the meaning of a blessing, what a blessing could do, because a lot of people perceive the world, because this is true with most things, as zero-sum game. You know, if this chair over here went into the other room, I wouldn't have a chair here. But a blessing, what he's saying, if you bless the Jews, you will be blessed. In other words, by giving a blessing, blessings increase. Yes. It's almost like a fire. Like if you take a candle and light it with another candle, you don't have less fire, you have more fire. Yes. 
Exactly. And I, I have found that, Mark, in my own life. That's a great point that you bring out, actually. I, I think sometimes, I don't mean to sound disrespectful, sometimes some Christians almost feel like Israel's a lucky rabbit's foot. And we're going to bless Israel. And we'll be, it's not a one-time donation thing. Hey, I did my part. I gave to Israel. You said it, Mark. For me, once I started to bless Israel and really devoted my life to the cause of Israel and the Jewish people, it was like a fire that was kindled inside of me. And I was just pulled in more and more. God pulled me in in a magnificent way. But the fire was kindled and it's just become an all-out inferno of, of just devotion to this cause. Because the more you learn about Israel and the more you get to know the people, the more you walk the land, the more the love grows deeply in your soul, in your very being. Absolutely. Every single time I go, it's as special as the first time. It's as, it's as memorable as the first time. Every, every time there's something magical about it. That's, and it's totally unique. It is. It is, Mark. And you and I have been there many times. And every time, like you said, we discover something new. Maybe it's even some new alleyway in the old city of Jerusalem. Who knows? Absolutely. But it, it's just unbelievable in, in the physical sense, uh, in a spiritual sense. And I'm like you, Mark. Every time we're kind of flying into Tel Aviv, to Ben Gurion Airport, that excitement comes. I can't wait to get on the ground. Every time, and I've been many times, I know you have two, Mark, but like you said, every time, it's never like, oh, I'm back in Israel, ho-hum, here we are. Never. It's always like the first time. Absolutely. And, and that, that being able to go to Israel, I mean, imagine if we told our grandparents, forget COVID for a moment, imagine if we told our grandparents, maybe I'll go to Israel this weekend. It would be, it would, it would be literally, it would be considered insane. Yes. I'll go to Israel. You know, I'm not going to go to Israel. It's going to be a thriving state. I don't know if I'm going to go to the beach. I don't know if I'm going to go to the mountains. I don't know if I'm going to go on a hike. I yes. don't know if I'm going to see some historical place. I don't know. What I'm, maybe I'll do all of it. In one day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In one day. It would be considered insanity. But yes, not only can we have done it, you and I have both done it dozens of times. Yes. What a blessing. And just to give you an idea, Mark, just as you're saying that, a story about a year ago, I was in a, in a taxi cab going to the airport on my way to Israel. I was with, my driver was a 70-year-old Russian Jewish immigrant. His entire life, he had dreamed about going to Israel, and he had never been. Here I am, this 43-year-old Gentile guy going to Israel every few months. I mean, just unbelievable. But the, the days we are living in where we are able to do that, but to have this, this Jewish cab driver, I felt, what I'm saying is, I felt so blessed and almost, I don't want to say unworthy, but wow, how blessed I am. God, thank you. And this Jewish man who was probably persecuted in Russia, immigrated here, has never been to his ancestral homeland. It just really made me put everything into perspective and just praise the God of Israel for taking me there. And it's really a gravitational pull on my heart, truly. Well, and, and, and that I think illustrates what a true blessing is, is that it, blessings beget more blessings. When you have a blessing, if it gets more blessings, you have more blessings. When you give a blessing, nothing's taken away. It's like education. When you educate somebody, knowledge increases. When you give knowledge to someone, you didn't lose anything. No. They gained it. They share it. It just multiplies. Yes. Just like a blessing, just like a trip to Israel. It's just, it's just this extraordinary enthusiasm that infuses you when you're there that you just want to go back and share with others and increase the blessing as blessings do. Yeah, so true, Mark. When you come back, you can't stop talking about it. And I'm talking to a lot of people in my life who people who it shocks me, Mark. I have to say, I got a Facebook message from a good buddy I grew up with in Philadelphia last week. Tough guy, great guy, tough guy. Not exactly the type I would think would want to go to Israel. And he said, hey, number one, I'm glad you're, you're back home. But number two, 
man, I would like to talk to you because I would really like to go to Israel and visit Israel. I was blown away. And I've had so many conversations like that, Mark, because like you said, you come back and I come back. I guess our enthusiasm is contagious. I remember being on a family. We were on the beach last year and, and telling uh, my wife's uncle all about Israel. He looked me right in the eye and said, I want to come with you. When are you going next? So I Beautiful. think the enthusiasm that we are bringing on podcasts like this and in our personal lives, contagious and, and people are getting it. Well, I mean, you, you have a global audience uh, with regularity and, and you bring the love of Israel and the blessing of Israel to so many people on such a regular basis. One very interesting insight I had was I've gone on a couple of trips to Israel with Eagle's Wings, which is this extraordinary yeah. organization of, um, yeah, largely evangelical pastors, really for their first time in Israel. Now, their first time quickly becomes their second, third, fifth, sixth time. Oh, yeah. But because they love it. But I remember saying to a couple of the pastors I met who loved every minute of their trip in every way something could be loved. I said, what was your favorite part of the trip? And they said to them, they said, uh, Shabbat dinner. Yes. And I was so surprised because I was expecting <laughs> them to talk about the Kotel or Ir David, which, which is my favorite place in Israel. Me too. Or something with particular Christian significance. But no, it was Shabbat dinner. So why do you think Shabbat dinner was their favorite? You don't seem surprised. No, I don't at all, Mark. I hear it all the time. And I have to say, for me, Shabbat dinner is at the top of the list. I'm an Ir David guy like you. I love the city of David. But for me, Shabbat dinners in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular, are, are at the top of the list. And I could see why a first-time visitor would just be so taken with and blown away by it. Well, yeah. So, so from a Gentile perspective, yeah. what's so special about Shabbat dinner? Uh, number one, the Spirit of God. I feel like the Spirit of God is in the room in many Shabbat dinners I've been to. But number two, it's all about God and family. How great is that? I mean, especially pastors coming from America where, you know, in many ways we're losing that in a sense. People are at the dinner table on their devices as they're trying to have a family dinner. It's terrible. People are working seven days a week nonstop. There is no day of rest. I think for the people of Israel to stop everything. I mean, everything shuts down on Shabbat. I mean, you're in Jerusalem, five o'clock, six o'clock. It's a ghost town. Everyone's in their home where they should be with just their family, great conversation, great food, prayer. And I think one of the major things is the father, the head of the household will go around and bless everyone in the family, his children and his wife. Mark, that has such a profound effect on pastors who are sitting there and, and taking this all in, who want to be worthy of that mantle of being the head of the household. I know I do. To see Israelis and the Jewish people, Jewish fathers do that, bless their children, speak into the lives of their wife, their wife and their children. That is such a powerful thing. I think that is one of the things that people are truly taken by. And clearly, there is a love for God in the room during Shabbat. Even if it's a, it's a more secular family, there's something there. There is certainly something there. And it's not hard to, to pick up on it while you're there at that dinner table. It's fascinating. I mean, uh, the, the most special part of every week for, for us is when we bless our children on Friday night in exactly the way you said. And then uh, when I say, I say it in English because I can't sing in Hebrew or <laughs> I, I can't even read the Hebrew, but I, I, I read Ashes Chayel, which is Proverbs 31. Actually, two thirds of the Proverbs is Ashes Chayel. I, I read it and I think reading in English in the vernacular is because I really mean every word when I address Erica with it. And, and it, everyone understands what I'm saying because I'm reading it in English. And I mean, it's such a beautiful thing to be able to acknowledge and honor your wife in such a profound, ancient, and yet yeah. so relevant way today. And in front of the children. I think Absolutely. that's a key point, Mark. For us to honor our wives and their mother in front of them, they say, wow, 
dad really esteems mom. He loves her. Such a huge thing for the kids to take that all in. In times where, you know, divorce is running rampant, there's a lot of acrimony in the home to have that love openly displayed to mom in front of the entire family, and maybe even some people who aren't family members, I think has a powerful effect on the kids as well. Well, that, that, that would explain the, the, the Gentile love of Shabbat there when they love everything about Israel, but that's what, that's what I've seen them love the most. So it's Yes, and it's ancient, and it's holy, and it's from God. I think that's another, people are saying, well, the Jewish people were doing this 3,500, 4,000 years ago. It's ancient and it comes from God. I, I think it amazes people that the Jewish people have carried on these traditions for thousands of years through pogroms and persecution, yet still Shabbat is there. Every Friday, Shabbat, the Jewish people are faithfully there for thousands of years, an unbroken string. I think it amazes people. Absolutely. And the, the um, when you talked about how we bless our children, that's, of course, the priestly blessing. And the priestly blessing yes. is the oldest artifact ever found in Jerusalem is an amulet with the priestly blessing, proving that you're right, that, that, that parents have been blessing our children with the priestly blessing literally for thousands of years. And they took it to their grave, the priestly blessing, for thousands of years, uninterrupted, every Friday night, the same blessing. That's yeah. awesome. It's incredible. I, I bless my own daughters with that now too, with the priestly blessing, the ironic blessing. So Beautiful. It's, it's amazing, Mark. I think it's so much for people to take in. But I think also the other point about Shabbat dinners is when you're in Israel for the first time, you're running around, you have a, you have a great guide who's probably taking you from site to site. You're in Jerusalem, Galilee, everywhere. But then you sit down and you're able to finally catch your breath at Shabbat dinner and just unwind and relax a little bit and, and take it all in. I think it's such a powerful thing. And it's all the way it's usually scheduled is kind of maybe right in the middle of the trip or kind of towards the end of the trip where everyone kind of needs that rest that God gives us. It's a gift. Shabbat is a gift. Everyone should do it. Jewish, non-Jewish, everyone should do Shabbat. Turn the TV off, put the devices on the table, sit together as a family, break bread together, love one another and, and honor God. Well, I, I, I think our next conversation, we, we should be talking about how do we share the gift of Shabbat with everybody to make it an everybody thing? Because that's, 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 that's where it should be. Now, moving from one text to another, this is always the final question. So we were on the great Genesis 12. Now we're going to a very different text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. Okay. And he says in the first page, he says, I, I ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And I said to him, in all the years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so um, Eric, in all your years as a Christian Zionist and as a Christian Zionist leader, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Wow. Two things that I've learned about mankind. I, I think number one, uh, people can change. I, I believe people can change. You hear oftentimes- no one can change. He'll always be that way. I have seen it in my own life, my own walk, Mark. People can change. I am not the man I was before I came to Christ, before I became a serious practicing Christian. I'm a different man now. I, I truly am a new creation. People can change in their lives. A second thing about mankind, hmm, let me think. I like that, by the way, there are no grown-up people. Pretty funny. <laughs> a second thing about mankind, hmm, I'll just, since we're talking family, I'll keep it there. Children change you in the most wonderful and profound way. I would th That's pretty simplistic to say that, but I, again, I'm a different man. You're so right. After my children. Yeah, I was, I, I had put, I put childish things away. No pun intended. We're talking about children. As the Bible would say, I put childish things away. And all of a sudden I really, truly became a man 
when my first child was born. Children change you in profound ways and all, in my view, all of them good. That's right. And, and starting with the, you learn what love really is. Yes. In its most profound sense. Actually, you know, the first mention of love in the Bible is not in romantic context. It's between Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. Wow. So that's how we really learn love. Yeah. And unconditional sacrificial love. Ideally, we have that in our marriage as well, but for our children, perhaps even more intensely, that unconditional sacrificial love. All your priorities change once, once kids come, or they should. <laughs> right. And, they, and, and God makes it happen. Yes. Eric, thank you for such a fascinating, as usual, conversation. And uh, thank you for being a guest on The Rabbi's Husband. Anytime, Mark. God bless you, man. Keep up the great work. God bless you. Thank you. You are the God of the If you leave us a breakthrough,